Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm Lydia Akobole, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Hena Shah, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, it's Amar, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhwaz Khan and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast, or Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. Hi, this is Kal Singh Dinsa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Good evening, friends. I'm Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Today's guest, I'm thrilled to say that we are in Baltimore, Maryland. Yes, it's our first guest over in the United States of America. We actually have a worldwide listen and the US is our second biggest listening base. I'm happy to welcome Kerry Pugh. She's going to be talking to us about her father-in-law who died of leukemia and cancer. Kerry was his caretaker and she is also the owner of Life in a Clutch. As always, thanks for listening. Hi Kerry, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. What about yourself? Yeah, really good. I'm excited because, you know, you're our first guest from America. Uh, we have a reach uh we have quite a wide reach there's a lot of people listening in america so it made sense for us to kind of move away from uk voices well not move away but expand our voices because you know the diaspora is so huge Um, Mm -hmm. and it's good to get a wide perspective so i'm really i'm really excited to have you here well thank you i'm excited to be here yeah so um our listeners they just love to know where people are from and what they do and kind of um you know for context so yeah introduce yourself tell us where you're from and what you do all right well my name is carrie Pugh. i'm from baltimore maryland um which is in the united states um i recently graduated with my master's in social work from university of southern california so i'm really really excited about that um yeah (laughs) that was a long hard road thank you thank you thank you I appreciate it um as far as like what I do for a living um I recently launched my nonprofit called Life in a Clutch um and Life in a Clutch basically um is a nonprofit that empowers women preserve families and uplift youth um and that's something that i started based on things that i've experienced growing up here in baltimore Mm, that sounds really exciting i I love the name life in a clutch it's brilliant Um, thank you yeah so um is this related to mental health and kind of the issues that impact women and how we can kind of you know improve yes so i'm really big on making sure that ethnic groups and minority groups are actually 
receiving and exposed to mental health services and trying to change that stigma that's associated with seeking therapy and getting help and things of that nature. So I definitely want to help women. Um, and one of the first things that I want to do with helping women is I offer a doula service. Um, I think most of the time when people think of a doula, they think of someone that's in the room while someone is giving birth, but it's a little bit more than that. Um, one of my focus is to help people that may be having a difficult time getting pregnant, um, as well as helping women adjust to the different changes that they experience during pregnancy, mm -hmm. as well as post-pregnancy. Um, and post-pregnancy doesn't have to necessarily mean um, an actual birth. It could be um, helping women that experience stillbirth, miscarriage, may have a child that's in the NICU. So it's different things. So I definitely want to do a focus on postpartum um, based on my experience. I just know that once I had my son, um, it was like no manual. You were just left out there <laughs> to yeah. fend for yourself. And it was a really, really big adjustment. So I definitely want to help women and empower them and just know that it's okay with not being okay and not knowing everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think when you become a, a new parent, it's very daunting and it's a, a new adjustment to life, uh, mm -hmm. as you say. And Thank you. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited for you and I, I think it's wonderful for especially ethnic groups. Yes. Uh, because I, I think the issues that we're faced with are, are different um, and that sometimes we don't get fair or equal access to certain services because um, they're not geared towards our needs. So it's it's really nice to hear there's a grassroots, you know, that we have these grassroots organizations being set up. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, because that's a big thing here um, in America. A lot of African-American women are losing their lives and it's simply because doctors aren't listening to them um, in their doctor appointments and things of that nature, and they're dying from things that could have been um, preventative. So I definitely think it's important to educate people about doulas and about um, how to actually advocate for yourself in the doctor's appointments, because I think sometimes we get so stuck on the fact that, oh, this person went to medical school, so they, they're the experts. I'm going to just listen to them instead of listening to our bodies and actually saying, no, that's not right. This is what's going on. And just being a voice. Mm. I'm so happy that you said that because um, I have to tell my own story at the end of the season. And it's very much about what you just described there. But in relation to terminal illness, mm -hmm. uh, we have a problem here in the UK that it's very silenced. It's a contentious issue. But we trust our medics and we just let whatever they say is gospel mm -hmm. and they'll just you know they'll decide oh you can have this treatment or you can't have this treatment or they don't give you the options and it can get really convoluted or they don't believe what you're saying in the GP surgery so they mm -hmm. will just brush it off and uh, I think the black community in the UK and the Asian community particularly find that they have to exaggerate times 100 in order to be heard by the, the health professional. Which is really sad and unfortunate, but that's why it's important for us to talk about it um, and people that really, really educate themselves and really just advocate for themselves because at the end of the day, 
yes, they're the expert, but you're, you're the expert of yourself. Mm. <laughs> so you definitely have to make sure that you speak up for yourself, especially if you feel as though it's not right. And just encouraging people to really go by their gut instinct if you feel like it's wrong. So that's something that I'm really, really big on. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad that you kind of brought that to our awareness and attention. Um, because I, I'm not sure how much of that we do in the UK. But it sounds like in America, um, you guys, I think maybe are ahead of us. You're certainly ahead of us when it comes to therapy services, because accessing therapy services in the UK is still like, it's stigmatized a little bit or it's not a part of our normal day <laughs> yes I've read a lot of articles about it and I was actually shocked because I in my mind I feel like some with some things I feel like the UK is a little bit more forward thinking than the US um so when I was doing my research on therapy practices and things of that nature in the UK I was actually shocked at the fact that therapy wasn't that popular I mean, I'm hearing that it's starting to become a little bit more um, yeah. accepting, but that it still is that stigma. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do in the UK. That's why we're just like, oh, the Americans are so ahead when it comes to therapy because it's like going to lunch or going for a walk mm -hmm. to see your friend. And it's very normalized. And yeah, I think it's amazing that you're doing this work to normalize things, to educate and to help our communities rise. So more power to you. Um, you. Father-in-law, he died in 2019. Correct. Uh, he had cancer, is that right? Yes. So he actually had leukemia, um, but a lot of people aren't familiar with leukemia. So the best way to explain it is cancer because it affects the body the same way. Are you able to kind of talk us through sort of what happened, like the run-up to when he got the diagnosis and sort of, you know, where you were and what you were doing at the time? Yes, I felt comfortable talking about it. Um, okay. Actually, I was as I was getting ready for the podcast, um, like I was just reviewing like the different stages of grief and things of that nature. And then I realized I had an aha moment where I realized when you get the diagnosis for a family member or anyone that you love, you start realizing that you go through the grief process a lot sooner before they actually pass if that makes sense because you're dealing with like the shock of things and things of that mm -hmm. nature so that was something that I realized that I've been going through um prior to him actually passing mm. it's like anticipatory grief right yes that's the best yes that's the best way to describe it yeah it's really hard it's when you see a loved one be diagnosed and I mean did he get any treatment did they offer treatment to him well he did so I'll go ahead and explain the whole story um because it's just amazing how everything just worked out the way that it did mm -hmm. um my husband is um in the military so we were constantly moving um so it was just ironic that we had the opportunity to move back to Maryland um, which we were really excited about because we're both from Maryland um, and our son, um, which he was a baby at the time, was going to get to know his family versus getting to know his family through Skype or FaceTime or anything like that. Mm. So we actually um, decided to purchase a home here in Maryland and we did that. And the day that we moved into our home, we got a call from my father-in-law that stated that he wasn't really feeling well and that 
he really needed someone to come over to see him. Um, so my husband rushed over. Um, he couldn't get to his father. So he actually had to break into the home um, to get access to his father. And his father was laying on the ground. Um, so we had to call, well, he called 911 um, and it came and they transported him to the hospital. Um, while he was in the hospital, he was there for probably about three days. Um, on December 31st, that's when we actually got the diagnosis that he had cancer. But at that time, we didn't know what type of cancer. Um, so he had to actually be transferred to another hospital that actually specialized in cancer treatment, which just so happened to be Johns Hopkins. Um, so he got transferred to that hospital and they just kept on running tests upon tests. Um, they couldn't determine what was wrong or anything like that. Um, so because he was in the hospital for so long, um, we were at a place where it was to decide whether or not do I seek employment or do I stay here and take care of my father-in-law as a full-time caretaker? Mm -hmm. To me, it was a, a no-brainer to just become a caretaker because of um, the type of work that my husband does. And um, my husband's sibling, she lives in another state. So the entire family lives in another state. Um, so it's just basically my father-in-law um, and his mother, but his mother was dealing with dementia. So she wasn't fully present. Yeah. Um, so it was basically... It was just the shocker of everything. Yeah. Um, so at that point, we decided that um, I would take care of my father-in-law full-time, which I'm very thankful for, because my father-in-law was not really good at relaying information pertaining to what the doctors were saying. So with me being able to um, assist him full-time, I was able to actually go to the hospital and spend time and actually communicate with the doctors to make sure that they're doing everything that they possibly can do. Mm -hmm. um, and just to get information as far as what they are suspecting is going on. Um, once we got the results and found out that we were, that it was leukemia, we were pretty much in shock. Um, we didn't expect it. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't know anybody that had leukemia. So that was um, definitely a shocking diagnosis to receive. Yeah, it's really, I think the first time when you hear about a diagnosis of a terminal illness for a family member, it is such a shock to the system. You know, yeah. I, I've been there and I know I remember what that felt like. And um, do you remember what your father-in-law's reaction was when he heard? Um. He was well, the best way to describe it is first, you have to know what type of person he was. Um, he was a very, very smart man, but he was very stubborn and he was an introvert. So he wouldn't necessarily show how he felt, but I could tell that he was nervous um, about the diagnosis. Um, nervous in a sense, because when he went to his first doctor's appointment, um, where he asked, like, what is the life expectancy? I could see when he was talking about it, I could see that he lost a little bit of hope, if that makes sense. Because um, yeah. yeah. it's really hard to hear a date that you're expected to die. Yeah. Um, so that was very shocking. And that's where 
I noticed that his attitude changed drastically um, once he got that information. Because now he wasn't living anymore. He was living to die, I oh, guess God. that's the best way to describe it. Oh, gosh. So did he sort of, so he, do you mean he lost hope in that moment? He just gave in? Yeah. Yes, that's the best way to describe it. Oh, gosh. That's so hard, really It hard. is. It's so hard to see that reaction and that change in a loved one as well when they receive that news. It's mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Um, I remember it very well in my own story, but uh, it's you feel helpless, don't you? Because you're like... You do. You feel helpless, and then I feel bad because I'm the one that's relaying the information to his children. Um, so I think that was the hardest part because even though I knew him for over 20 years, um, it's still hard to give that type of information to my husband and to his sister when it's not my father by blood. And I know that they want to do so much more, but because of their work obligations and things of that nature, they can't give 100%. So I felt... I felt bad having to relay information like that. And then it was the struggle with, I don't want to cross boundaries or anything like that to make anybody feel uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. And when you had to relay that news to your husband and his family, what do you remember what their reaction was like? Um, I think it was more so frustration, not frustration because they didn't expect that um a lot of times when you hear about leukemia or cancer you just automatically assume okay let's do chemo then maybe we'll do radiation and then he'll be okay Mm. um but to hear like the life expectancy for someone it's kind of hard um and that was something hard to process because no one expected that and then this was all around the holidays. So this happened around Christmas time. Um, so it was it was definitely a shocker. And it, it definitely changed the family dynamic fabric. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily in a bad way, but in a good way. But it definitely changed how we interact with each other. Oh, yeah. I hear you on that. Um, you can become more united and more logical or, and, and I know some families, it might be the opposite of that, or some, some people will contribute a little bit more and come together and make adjustments in their personal lives. Right. To come and, together and help with the care and stuff. But are, are you able to talk about the dynamics a little bit? Was it like that? It brought everyone together in some way? or It did. Um, it really did. Because I'm not going to say that my... <laughs> husband and his sister don't get along but um as a result of the diagnosis they started communicating a little bit more checking in with each other which I think is a beautiful thing that came from it um also they were able to unite when it comes to I mean unfortunately the part that people don't want to talk about but when it comes to like the legal things when it comes to taking care of someone that um is terminally ill so it did bring um, about change and direction and structure and things of that nature as far as how 
we handled the business side of helping out well their father my father-in-law um as well as how to take care of someone that is terminally ill from afar and in person Mm, massive adjustment yes it was definitely a really really big adjustment Mm. so they they gave a life expectancy is that because they couldn't treat him or it was low um low success rates of the treatment they offered um it was more so the type of leukemia that he had um it attacked the, the bloodstream to a point where it was fighting the white blood cells. So the medication that they did offer um, for chemo was more so like a study-based um, chemo treatment. Um, so it's basically, it was to help regulate his blood cells, but it's only but so long that he could be on that medicine before his body gets used to it and starts developing like natural antibody, I mean, anti bodies to actually attack the medicine so that it's no longer effective if that makes sense yeah no it does gosh so so eventually that sounds like that medicine would stop working because his body would get used to it right and that's how they described it um um, it was available however um we would talk to him about it um we would also talk about it as a family um and a couple of things we didn't think was something that we would want to actually do. Um, however, he was open to the chemo treatment um, because it wasn't traditional chemo. It's more like a pill form. Um, mm. However, there was a lot of side effects to that. So the chemo that he was on wasn't going to be too successful because that he didn't do or wasn't open to. Um, For example, he was not big on going to the doctors and things of that nature. So he's never had um, like a colonoscopy, things of that nature that um, a lot of men are required to have by a certain age. Um, So what ended up happening is that he ended up dying from colon cancer versus the leukemia. Um, and it wasn't connected to the leukemia at all. Oh, gosh. Yes. So he was basically, we were treating, he was getting treatment for leukemia. Um, and he wasn't getting treatment for colon cancer whatsoever. Um, oh. And once we discovered that he had colon cancer, it's it was pretty much, it was too late at that point. Oh, my God. That's, that's mad. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so they kind of. I I guess the colon cancer, you have to go for certain tests, like the colonoscopy that you just talked about, Mm -hmm. um, and then those got missed off. But, um, well, the doctors couldn't have picked that up in a blood test or anything else, no. Correct. So it was other things that he was supposed to get done. um, But my father-in-law wasn't very open um, to getting a lot of procedures. My father-in-law grew up in the South, the South, so he's not from Maryland. So in the South, during the time in which he was actually born, there was a lot of um, medical tests being done on African-American men and women. For example, it's the Tuskegee syphilis um, study that was done where they were actually injecting black males with syphilis and things of that nature. And a lot of men died from it. 
Um, so I think that in the African-American community, specifically in his age range, um, a lot of them don't want to go to the doctors and they don't trust the doctors um, because of studies like that. Mm-hmm. that took place. So I think that there's a, a true fear of going to the doctors, um, fear of not knowing what they're going to do, um, and a fear of finding out something that they don't really want to know. Mm. And how do you feel about that? Um, that's a really good question. I personally think that it kind of goes back to what my mission is. I think that it's important to go to the doctors and get checked because a lot of diseases and things that nature can be prevented by going to the doctors and finding out early. However, I think it's also important to educate ourselves about what's going on and what the doctors are saying and to ask questions and to really advocate for yourself um, if you don't understand something or if you don't agree with something. Um, So in this case, um, what's the best way to put it? I think, I don't think he was really prepared to hear that he has colon cancer on top of leukemia, Mm. to be honest. Mm. I think that that would have been too much for him. Um, Just considering like his mental state um, at the time that he was diagnosed and going through the process. Mm. it's a lot of information you know when you're being told what your life expectancy is with one disease and then to find out you've got another I can't imagine what that's like I agree Uh, I mean as the family members us as the family members we observe it and we see the reactions and the changes of that person but I can't it really pains me when I think about it what's that mm-hmm. like when you're told that your life you know is going to come to an end soon mm-hmm. and, and yeah that yeah. was really hard because when we found out that he had the colon cancer it was he like he passed away not too long afterwards because oh, um, once we discovered that he had colon cancer um the colon cancer had actually spread to other parts of the body mm-hmm. um so at that point, it was a situation where we're now talking about hospice um, and things of that nature. And he was adamant that he was not going to hospice. Um, he wanted to pass in his home. Um, however, at that point, it was difficult for me um, because it was just a lot to take on, as well as being a mom and being in school and things of that nature at that time. Um, So -hmm. we did have to put him in, it wasn't necessarily a hospice, but it was more of a a facility where they could take care of people that have medical issues. Um, And that was what was needed because he needed 24 hour care at that point um, because the disease was basically taking over his whole body. It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard decision to make when you have to transition from the home to into 24-hour care. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. And how do you feel that impacted you guys? How did you deal with it? I personally, I think, I think it was the best decision 
Um, and the only reason why I'm saying it was the best decision because from a caretaker standpoint, it was hard for me to to watch him 24-7 as well as manage my own household. Um, and he wasn't very open to going to stay with somebody else. He wanted to stay in his house. He was very stubborn in that matter. Um, mm. But it was definitely... It was helpful, but then it was also hard because now we find ourselves having to commute to actually go see him um, at the facility more, um, which was not a problem, but we didn't have as much access to him. So at this point, it's more so um, we have set hours in which we could come visit, things of that nature. So it's a little bit more um, rigid than if he was at home we could just go and just spend some time with him mm -hmm. um so that was a big adjustment um and i guess it's also trusting that facility that hospice care other carers yes oh my gosh job. yes because that's another big issue i'm not sure if that's an issue in the uk but here there's a lot of facilities where they're not taking care of people properly um, so a lot of times you have to stay on top of, um, facilities and things of that nature, which we did have to send him to a facility before because he was in and out the hospital a lot, um, during this time. And one time we did have to go to, um, a facility and we picked a, a large, well-known one. And I feel as though that one was worse than <laughs> any other, the uh, other options that we had, mm -hmm. um, where they weren't personable versus the one that we ended up going with um, when he transitioned, it was a really, really good choice for him. Um, they did stay on top of him. Um, they kept us informed about everything and things of that nature. And if I didn't hear from them, I was definitely reaching out to them, um, advocating for him. Like that's, that's the big thing is making sure that you're advocating. Yeah, I. it is a bit of an issue in the UK. Um, I'm glad we're talking about this because it's um, it's silenced, I feel, here in the UK. We really have to advocate for someone when they are going to a care facility. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether you're seeing a health professional, you do have to advocate for yourself and advocate for someone else because once it's in the hands of, of the, the health professional, like, it's out of your hands and your control. Mm -hmm. and, it, it is. Um, and that's really difficult. I mean, even what you wouldn't think that you would have to worry about is making sure that they're giving him medication, making sure they're changing him, bathing him, things that you would think that they will automatically do um, is stuff that they don't do in and, some of these facilities. And did you, the facility in the end sounds like it was really nice and worked for him. The, yes. The first mm -hmm. one, did you run into issues in the first one, which was a large facility? That one, I think we had more issues. Um, and I don't, it, it was just really odd because I didn't expect it at all. Um, but it was issues with finding staff members when he needed things, um, making sure that his items are returned to him and not stolen. Like it's little things like that, that was missing, like not missing, but that was a big concern that you mm. wouldn't think would be a concern, but they didn't have enough staff, the food, things of that nature. Now, and I'm not saying that my <laughs> father-in-law was um, 
the easiest person to get along with. But regardless, you have a service that you have to provide to someone and it's basic things. You should be offering him something to drink and making sure that he's eating and things of that nature. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They need to train themselves in working with service users that um, I feel like with that generation, I'm really resonating with what you're saying because my dad is, is, was quite similar. Um, you know, you might say no to something at first, mm-hmm. <laughs> but regardless of that, you need to, you know, find a way to persuade, use your persuasion skills to to make sure that he is being fed and that he does agree to going out in the wheelchair or whatever. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's definitely but I think that's a generation thing. And um, I usually find that elders are like that or older. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they're dying as well and they're sick. So what do yeah. you do? Know, exactly. Expect? Exactly. And that's what I kept on telling myself, <laughs> even when it was starting to get hard um, mentally for me to to help him. Um, just let him, just keep on reminding myself that he's older Mm. and he's going through a process a transition process that Mm. is not going to be fun or exciting or anything like that so I wouldn't expect him to to be jolly or anything (laughs) like that all the time so yeah exactly and I feel like um you know I don't this isn't me disrespecting our carers and people (laughs) working care homes but it's something me and my brother talk about a lot he was like, I'm not sure how caring the caring world is these days. Mm. I, I feel like it's shifted. Back in the day, it was more caring. Like people went into that profession because they really cared. Whereas now I feel like it's just quick money or fast money. Yes, I agree 100%. Um, definitely we've met people that love their job and you could tell that they love their job. But then like at the larger facilities, you could just tell that they're just going through the routine because that's what they have to do. And they're going to leave out at the time that they're scheduled to leave. Like there's no overtime or anything like that for them, um, which is really sad. So I definitely think we need to get back to caring for others. Mm, yeah, no, I, I echo that. And I think that's what's always worried me about these caring facilities because you do run into those issues so so with your father-in-law you advocating to make sure that he did get his drink and his snack and that he was getting his medication even if he was refusing or you know might have been challenging or whatever um you have to do that from afar and when you're there visiting to check correct and you want to make sure that your presence is known there uh, because then they'll actually take better care of you because of course no one want um, to be reported or anything like that. So they definitely go out their way. But I definitely had to make sure that my presence was known as well as try to get family members to go and visit and check in and things of that nature. Mm. So, and that's very important. I really want to, I will come back to that actually later on okay. in the season. I, I've got a lot to say about that presence um, in hospitals and care homes because, you know, vi- visitation hours are quite restrictive mm-hmm. um and have, I, sometimes in hospitals and care homes families can stay there if they have a spare room but not all of them offer that option uh, and it's exceptional circumstances sometimes but um it's really important to make your presence known so they know 
that they have a job to do because if your presence isn't there and you're not you know visiting that often or whatever I feel like I don't want you know how do I put it into words it sounds harsh but I Mm -hmm. feel like care is less yes yes and it may not even be that situation for that particular family or situation but that's how they're going to look at it. Like, oh, they don't care. They're not checking in and things of that mm. nature. Which is really yeah, sad. I have a lot of issues with that. Yes, <laughs> yes. We can yeah, definitely talk I think about anyone that for a very long time. Yeah, I think anyone that's listening, um, you know, make your presence known if you can. Uh, even if you can't visit as much as you'd like to, make your presence known that this, you know, your loved one that's here in this care facility you care about them and how they're being looked after. Definitely. And then I always tell people, like, in every situation that I've ever been in, I've always tried to put myself in the other person's shoes. And if I was in their shoes, where if I was in my father's-in-law place, um, how would I want to be treated? Um, How can I show that I care and things of that nature? Um, So making sure that I stayed on top of staff and things of that nature, I feel like he appreciated that because then he had someone rooting for him in his corner, which I think sometimes when people are going through like an illness or anything like that, they feel like they're alone. Mm. Yeah. It can be very isolating, very, very isolating. And um, yeah, we do need to stay on top of the staff because health professionals, it's a complex issue but you do really need to ask those questions and keep checking in with them and asking how he's getting on and that you'll be back tomorrow to see him and so forth so that the health professionals don't forget presence. Exactly. They're asking those questions. Otherwise, they get, I don't want to use the word lazy, but I've seen it mm-hmm. happen. And oh, definitely. It myself. They get very fucking lazy. They really do. Um, and it was to the point where they knew me. They had my cell phone number. They had my email address. Um, like I always followed up with emails and questions and things of that nature. Um, I tried my best. Mm. And, um, I, I don't think we should underestimate how hard that is. It's very hard. Oh, it definitely is. I definitely look at things differently. Um, it opened my eyes to, which may be a little weird, but I don't really think it's weird, but actually thinking about like a living will and things of that nature, like actually planning things out so that my my family don't, I'm not going to say struggle, but they don't have to worry about what I want, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah. And just planning things out strategically so that um, it's not stressful on one particular person. Mm. Yeah, because... um, there, when it comes to death and dying, um, we do need to look after, we need to take care of our business, is how I would mm-hmm. put it. Correct. H- having a will, knowing what your final wishes are, um, what you'd like to happen with your personal items, and you, what you would like at the end, really. It's an end of right. the plan. Exactly. Which is an awkward conversation to have sometimes, because um, there's mm-hmm. no real good time to bring it up um so I would try to lead the conversation into talking about things of that that nature um especially towards the end but towards the end I think 
my father-in-law knew that he was um, going to pass soon just by the conversations that we used to have in the car um, or at the facility and things of that nature. And he, um, but he basically just told me like the things that he loved and what he would want for his funeral and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. for me, it was awkward. Um, but at the same time, I was thankful for it because then when it was time for his funeral, I just made sure that I advocated for him. Mm. That's really beautiful. It sounds like you and your father-in-law had a very close relationship and he really, you know, he trusted you and he, he was open with having these conversations with you as hard as they are. Yes, um, we definitely got really close um, because of the situation. Um, well, I'm not going to say situation because of the diagnosis. Mm. So we definitely got very close. Mm. Gosh, it's so hard. So hard. Um, are you able to talk about kind of the, his final moments um, when you got the phone call or if you were there? Is that something easy to talk about or...? Um, I'll talk about it. I could talk about it in general terms. Um, so that week leading up to his death, um, I could tell that it was the end. Just something was telling me that he was just different that week. Um, he wasn't as responsive. He was very cranky. Um, when it was time to go to the doctors and stuff like that, I had to, I found myself having to bring like multiple changing clothes and things of that nature to, to really assist him. Um, but I just knew. So at that time, when I got that feeling, I, I made sure that I contacted the family. I was like, um, I can't say this is for sure, but I do think that you know, we need to start gathering and you need to come here as soon as possible to actually speak to him um, because he was just different. Um, Like his memory was starting to to go a little bit. Um, Some of the things that he was saying, it didn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, However, like at his last doctor's appointment, we discovered that the cancer did spread to his brain, which made a lot more sense. Um, as far as to why he was talking the way that he was talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he was at the facility, he was just rest all the time. Um, he was only, he started only eating like one meal a day. Um, and he only wanted food from this one particular place. Um, so I was making sure that I honored his request to take him there. Um, and then one evening, um, we got a phone call from the facility where they were saying that um, he's not doing really well. We really think he needs to go to the hospital. He has a fever. Um, He's not eating anything. He's been in bed all day. So I was actually going to the facility um, and I was trying to find um, like a medical service to actually take him to the one hospital that was familiar with him because the facility that he was in um, the hospital they would have took him to, it would have been too much information to explain to them um, about his diagnosis and things of that nature, and they couldn't handle his diagnosis. Um, so I would have to find some type of medic back um, transportation to take him directly from the facility to the hospital that he was going to to get services. Um, 
eventually we just got to the point where we just called 911 and 911 I basically had to advocate with them to take him to Johns Hopkins which they did cuz I explained like his medical history and the situation and they said that it was best to send him there so we went to the hospital and he basically wasn't responding much um at one point he did ask for water so I was giving him water through a straw um and then he just he he fell asleep and he was in he they ended up sending him to ICU um so from ICU he was there until well let me back up a little bit they sent him to ICU and they gave him medication to keep him alive so that his daughter could arrive to say her goodbyes um and then he passed away with my husband and my sister-in-law there. I wanted to give them time to spend together with their father. Um, I didn't feel as though I should have been a part of it. And I wanted to respect them and their experience um, because I know how it feels to lose a father. So I wanted them to, to have that time with their dad by themselves. Yeah, he really tough, really, really hard. It was, because um, it's it's just so weird how you can see someone that's strong, that, that was taking care of other people and things of that nature, and how they end up at a, at a state where they can't function anymore. That hurts. I feel it's a very painful thing to witness. It is. It definitely is. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I'm just processing. Um, what do you remember and sort of the, you know, the day after or later that day, do you, you know, with your, with your husband and uh, his sister, do you remember much after? Um, How you're feeling, the dynamics? I think it was a mixture. It was a mixture because it was also it was a little bit of a relief because he's no longer in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to see him like that anymore. Um, I think when he passed, to be honest, I think everybody was at a point where they were drained, and I hate to put it that way, but it takes a lot of energy when you're dealing with someone that has a terminal illness. Oh, yeah, on your mental health, absolutely. Yes. Do you feel it had a impact on your mental health? Oh, I definitely do, in a sense. Because um, it was really hard for me to do that because it, at times I was spending more time making sure that my father-in-law was okay um, than I was being able to be a mom and a wife, if that makes sense. Um, so a lot of times I had, like, my mom... Um, and my mother-in-law would actually help with um, watching my son. Um, but it was it was a lot because I was a new mom, just moved here um, to Maryland, moved into a new home. I was in the process trying to find employment. Um, so that was a shocker for me to, to go through the process of not working when I've been working since I was 14. Um, so that was a shocker. Um, 
it was definitely a hard process. That's the best way to say it. And, and part of it was because of um, the mindset of my father-in-law, if that makes sense. The mindset meaning um, how his generation views um, medical and mental health and things of that nature. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I hear you. It's a hard thing to explain. It's um, to get them to come to that understanding or to understand it, really. Yeah. Because that generation, I feel like, don't reaching out for help isn't something that is normal to them. Exactly. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And I think also, if we look at it from a gender perspective, I think men, it's harder mm. for men to reach out as well. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. That and that's another. That's yeah. another on top of that, <laughs> it is. It is. It's about dignity as well, and who they trust to be around them, and. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Really tough. Really. Tough. I want to ask about carers' rights in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So, because you were caring for your father-in-law, was did you get any sort of support, like a group you could go to? to you know where you could get some respite from it to talk through how you were feeling and how challenging it is they do have care groups but I found them towards the end um and unfortunately the schedule for them it wasn't really working with my schedule but what I ended up doing was I did seek therapy so one-on-one counseling um And that helped tremendously because sometimes when you're going through something, especially in this situation where you're not necessarily the biological child, um, you need someone that you could talk to that doesn't know you, that's not familiar with the situation where you can almost just vent Mm -hmm. to them about what you're experiencing. Because I personally would feel guilty venting to my husband or to my sister-in-law about their father, mm, yeah, <laughs> because no. it's their father. Um, yeah. And I don't want to make them uncomfortable or think that I'm ungrateful or, or not going to take care of him or anything like that. But sometimes you just need that outside person to talk to just to vent. Yeah, I got you. I hear you. Um, it's especially because it's your father-in-law and um, it's, I don't want to say immediate family, but, you know, it's not your dad or your mum and you're having to make decisions and advocate on behalf of your your husband and sister. So that kind of adds a layer of pressure, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So that's a totally different dynamic in itself, um, as well as being the caregiver. Mm. Um, so we, we've kind of gone forward a little bit. I want to come back to therapy, but... Uh, okay. I wanted to ask, like, how was the funeral? I mean, you can talk about it in a way that helps you and Mm -hmm. you don't have to go go through all the details if you don't want to. But I just wondered, you know, what that kind of looked like and how you said goodbye, really. Um, I actually think that he had a really nice funeral. We kept it simple um, because he wasn't super religious, so we didn't want to have... like a super religious component to it. We definitely respected and honor him. Um, And I think everyone appreciated it and loved it. Um, Instead of having someone um, preach a sermon or anything like that, we just gave, um, we just talked about our experiences with my father-in-law. And I think everyone loved it because we had the opportunity to laugh. Um, 
and cry. It it was I think it was really, really nice. Um everyone shared the story. <laughs> For example, I shared the story with him where, you know, his first doctor's appointment, um, I was trying to make like my car so comfortable for him and things of that nature. So I had a special playlist for him and like I downloaded Prince music for him. And I didn't know that that was like the one artist that he hated the most. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, that, that failed tremendously. Um, (laughs) But it's to share stories like that with our experiences with him. Um, Even the, um, the home that he was staying in um, while he transitioned, they even came. Um, like they became family to us, to be honest. Um, I still talk to them to this day. Um, mm. They came to the funeral. It was it was really, really nice. Yeah, I think saying goodbyes are, is really difficult. But if you can laugh and cry together and remember the life and celebrate the life, I think that's very wonderful. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And he would definitely would have been happy with it. Mm-hmm. So then that kind of brings me to talk about therapy and because you had the one to one counseling instead mm-hmm. of going to the carers rights groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just want to say I, I'm in awe of you. I think oh, being a thank carer you. is very, very, very hard, especially when it's slightly outside your family as well that's an ad- added pressure um and yeah honestly really just hearing about it it's very beautiful to hear how you advocated for him because that is a challenge in itself and comes with comes with its own pressures and issues and you know you have to educate yourself on the questions that you have to ask health professionals and Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had to do a lot of research because a lot of times the doctors are talking to you in medical terms and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, can you dummy it down? I hate to say dummy it down, but just talk so that someone that didn't go to medical school can actually understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times Google was my best friend. Um, I Googled mm-hmm. everything, even test results. I was looking at, okay, so what does this mean? Okay, what does he need to do to get this levels up and things of that nature? So I did try my best to stay on top. Mm. You know, it's interesting you should say that about Google because, you know, in the UK, we do a lot of Googling as well. Mm-hmm. But the medical professionals have a go at us for doing that. They're like, why do you do that? You know, listen to what we're saying. There's so much mm-hmm. crap on the internet. And I then I get frustrated. And, mm-hmm. I, and then I'm like, well, I can't understand your terminology. So what do you expect? And I need to know that you're telling me the truth. <laughs> exactly. It's not really anything against them. It's so that I can understand and just make sure that, because a lot of times, and let me backtrack a little bit, um, because a lot of times you'll receive like test results and things of that nature. And the doctor, of course, they have like tons of patients and stuff like that. So they're going to just give you a synopsis <laughs> of the test results. But mm. I'm one of those people, I want to know and understand everything that you tested for. Um, so I want to understand what is the normal level. I'm looking at his previous test results to make sure that they're improving or I can see where it's starting to decrease. And I'll say something to the doctors like, okay, well, I noticed that his hemoglobin or something like that is lower this week. So what does that mean? And things of that nature. 
Oh my gosh, Kerry. <laughs> I wish I knew you when my mum had her cancer. I wish I knew you, honestly. That was 10 years ago. We need more people like you and I will really support the work that you're doing um, with your work with women and advocating for women. Honestly, like we need more people Thank like you. you. Because Thank it's such you. a silenced topic here. People just take whatever medical professionals you know, say for gospel and they don't ask those questions. And if you criticise the National Health Service here, because, you know, our, our National Health Service is free, like we don't pay, well, we pay I wish. for it through tax. But. Right. Well, that's another story in itself. <laughs> if you want to talk about the cost of everything for my father-in-law, because it was just really, really unfortunate because we really didn't have any assistance like he didn't have health insurance because we had to pay for health insurance here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were relying on like Medicaid and Medicare and things of that nature. Um, but at the time that he was sick, he wasn't working because he had stopped working to take care of his mom full time. It was just it was a lot of unfortunate things where we we didn't know how the medical bills were going to get paid. So that was another thing where we had to constantly communicate with the hospital and different people and different agencies to try to see if there was any assistance on paying for his medical bills. Um, towards the end, I was able to apply for some uh, a grant through the hospital where they were actually paying um, for his medical bill. So, I mean, that was a blessing um, yeah. in disguise, but it's definitely costly. Like it, it, this helping my father-in-law just opened my eyes to healthcare in general, like the amount of money that they charge for little things, like everything. Yeah. I mean, we hear a lot about it here in the UK, how it works for you guys. And, you know, we, we do have a national health service that we rely on and we're grateful for, but I really feel for you guys because everything is an expense even the smallest thing mm-hmm. and and I just wonder if you don't have health insurance what does that mean for the dying person or the the sick person do they just get left to their own devices or as you say you know you have to add if there's an advocate to apply for the funding and the grants what's what's the general consensus for those that don't have health insurance and maybe can't apply for a grant um well, it's different things. Um, of course, we have like um, Medicare or Medicaid. However, you still have to meet a certain requirement for that. So, for example, my father-in-law, he used to work and he was a really, really, really good at saving his money. Um, so he had money in his bank account. So they go by how much income you have <laughs> versus mm-hmm. whether or not you're actually earning anything. So he would never qualify for anything based on that. Um, and it's just really unfair. I just think that tough man, really. Yes. Yes. Because you just find yourself in a situation where it's like, you can't win. And then I just, i just feel sorry for the people that have to advocate for themselves that don't have a support system, um, trying to maneuver through the system because it was crazy because you literally have to stay on top of the social workers. You have to stay on top of everyone when you're going through this process to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing um and it was just really crazy like you have to take notes <laughs> and I'm typing things out um to make sure that everything makes sense and things of that nature um but yeah, yeah but if, 
if you're vulnerable and you don't have anyone to advocate for you and you are the sick person or the dying person who's going to be writing all these notes and trying to keep up exactly when you're sick right that's where a social worker is supposed to come in but I tell you that this situation has opened my eyes to even like some of the social workers like most of them weren't helpful to be honest Um, and it was just really sad because I do when I was going through this process I really thought about like the homeless um people that really can't advocate for themselves because they don't really know what they're advocating for um a lot of this stuff I would have not known about if I didn't ask a whole bunch of questions, to be honest, or if I didn't open up my mouth and tell them what the situation was. Um, that's the only way a lot of this, like I was able to get a grant and things of that nature to help with his medical bills. Oh, Carrie, you're, you like that, you know, you're a blessing really that you asked these questions and you advocated and, um it really as you said opens your eyes up to how it all works especially for those that can't advocate for themselves and it must be incredibly frustrating and stressful and also not knowing because you just trust the system that mm-hmm. the system actually has opened your eyes up to the fact that it's a bit of a fuckery it's, it's oh yes it's broken <laughs> it's, it's definitely broken and it's it's just really sad um because health care should be a given right. <laughs> it shouldn't be one of those things where it's the haves or have nots. Um, Everyone should have it equally. Exactly. It's called equity. But mm-hmm. we don't live in a world that sees it like that. Well, I can't say a world because there are countries that um, that actually offer free, like UK. But here in the United States is such a big ordeal um, and then, like, the steps we were taking to going towards free health care under the new administration, <laughs> that's pretty much all gone. Um, with Obama as president, he was trying his best to get free health care. Um, we ended up having um, a program that we referred to, refer to it as Obamacare. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But then once Trump got into office, he try to eliminate and undo a lot of things that um, Obama was doing to help help those that aren't part of the wealthy community of the United States. Yeah. So it's a lot of politics. Yeah, I mean, our lives matter. Everyone's life matters. Absolutely. And I do Absolutely. feel that the ethnic minorities, you know, the Black community, the Asian communities, the Latin American communities are the ones where uh, the access feels restricted or limited. Exactly. Uh, in- inaccessible. I agree. Because when you look at the data and stuff like that, um, typically it's minorities that are affected the most. Um, which, I mean, really, we just really need to go back and really think, like, how did we as a nation get to this point? But part of acknowledging that is that the people that are in charge or the wealthy Americans or wealthy people anywhere need to realize their contribution to it. Um, it's just, a, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's, uh, we, we could talk about a healthcare podcast. Yes. Another occasion. <laughs> it is very complex. But it really is. 
Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing because I, I think it's good insight for all of our listeners in the world, um, in the UK, Germany, Canada, we have a lot of listeners everywhere and uh, I think that insight is very valuable and especially what you said about advocating and educating ourselves, not just relying on the medic or the social worker because even they cannot do their jobs sometimes or a lot of the time and then sometimes they because of their caseloads and things of that nature it's hard for them to remember so I'm not knocking them completely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but there's a lot of things that really need to be looked at and considered um in the medical profession Mm, absolutely I couldn't agree with you more it's it's not us knocking the the, you know the nurses and doctors that do work hard they as you said they have a lot of uh, caseloads but things need to be reviewed about how overworked they are perhaps and uh, how many cases they take on and also uh, in the UK we call something called uh, the bad bedside manner oh yes (laughs) so you're familiar with that term yes yes we use the same term yeah (laughs) it's universal (laughs) oh that's brilliant um yeah so uh, you know they need to work on that as well because that's something that really annoys me I think um there's a way to deliver news when someone's ill and or has just died and Mm -hmm. I think for them they've just seen so many dying people that it's like oh yeah your loved one died this is what happened move on Yes, because that's how it was when my father passed. Um, it it was like that, where the doctor was like, sorry, he didn't make it. And it was just really weird. I don't know if you know the eye drop commercial where it's a guy that sells eye drops, clear eye eye drops, but he has a very monotone voice. Um, and that's how this doctor was. And it was it was just horrible, <laughs> like that experience. Yeah, that's and I, wrong. Yeah, so that once that happened I said okay I'm going to advocate for people and make sure that doctors um work on their bed manner um (laughs) um learn how to treat people um and really just help others advocate for themselves Mm. yeah absolutely absolutely um I really appreciate you kind of sharing that and I hear it I've you know I've feel very strongly about the advocacy because it just doesn't happen in the UK and we need more people like you and I hope that the message that you know Kerry you've just delivered that this hits home with a lot of people where they might be impacted by this in the future or if they're being impacted right now um we've got to advocate for ourselves to to kind of change the narrative absolutely so that kind of brings me on to therapy um you had one-to-one counseling now, um, talk to me a little bit about how you kind of managed to find that. And um, you won't reveal who your therapist is, but like, was your therapist a white woman, just out of curiosity? Um, I actually, I had experience with therapy before uh, where I had a white woman. Um, I didn't think that she could connect with me um, because some of the things that she was telling me to do to cope with the situation I was going going through previously um it was more like opinionated so it definitely wasn't like a therapeutic um approach (laughs) so I told myself I wasn't gonna um get a white therapist I was gonna get an African-American therapist um and it's nothing against seeing a therapist outside your race you just want to make sure 
regardless of whatever therapist you pick, that you find one that you're comfortable with. Um, so for this time, when I was going through taking care of my father-in-law, I definitely wanted to do my research um, and find an appropriate um, therapist. So what I did was um, I used psychology today. Um, I did therapy for black girls website. She has a listing of therapists there as well. Um, but I basically did my research on the different therapists that were um, in my area. And then based on the therapist that I liked, um, I selected three. I called all three and only one person gave me a call back. So that's the person that I went with. Um, and I really enjoyed her process. Um, I'm a visual person. So she did a mixture of visual techniques um, as well as communicated with me one-on-one. Mm. It's, it is very important to find the right therapist for you. And it is okay, as you said, to go outside of your race, but you need to make sure that the person relates, mm-hmm. understands your community and um, that they just, that you have a connection with them. Absolutely. And that you're not spending what I would say in the UK is £75 for 50 <laughs> minutes. Yes. <laughs> to explain you know how things work in your community because you're not there to really spend too much time explaining your culture or your community or your faith exactly um, you're you're there to do mental gymnastics about what's going on in your life exactly so you definitely want to find one that's culturally competent um so and i always tell people go by your first vibe like if you get in the vibe that's like mm, i'm not sure about that one then you probably want to just go ahead and try to look for a new therapist because you don't want to waste your time and start explaining what you're going through just to have to do it again. Um, Because for some people that could be triggering. Um, So you definitely want to make sure you find the the right person in the beginning. And also just research um, what it's like to go to therapy. Because I think sometimes people are like, I don't know if I want to go because you don't know what to expect. But I think if you really research, um, it's plenty of videos on like YouTube, there's blogs about it. Um, I think you will become more comfortable with the idea of therapy. Mm. And even if you don't like your therapist on the first two sessions, you don't have to carry on. You can say, this ain't working for me. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you very much. Because you're paying for it at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. It goes back to advocating. You have to advocate for yourself. Yeah, 100%. And um, do you know what modality your therapist was? Like what modality she trained in? She sounds gestalt. She was really good. Um, She definitely had a focus on CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. So we did a lot of that. Um, I don't remember her licensure, though, but she was definitely a, a clinician. Um, but she was really, really good. Like she, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was actually in school for social work. Um, and she was very, very helpful with helping me <laughs> understand some of the theories and techniques that I was learning in school. Um, because sometimes when you're reading it and when you actually see it, it's sometimes a little different. Oh um, yeah. So <laughs> it was definitely helpful. Mm. And um, I don't know if in America, uh, in the States, you guys have the same thing, but in the UK, therapy is seen as a very white thing, like a very middle class white female thing. 
Um, so you, if you are looking for like a black, Asian or Latin American um, minority other therapist, you actually in the UK, you have to really research hard because it's difficult to find them sometimes um, because there's not many of us training uh, because it's expensive. It can cost 20000 to to train to be a therapist. Uh, so sometimes it's a bit of a challenge trying to find someone that isn't your bog standard well I don't, I don't want to be mean about white female middle class no because <laughs> there, are good ones. There, 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 <laughs> right. are, there are some good ones they're not all like that but what I'm trying to say in the UK it's a very known fact that it's seen as a very white thing um and you do have to really do your research to find the other mm-hmm. well it's the same here but there's more black people entering the profession mm-hmm. um but therapy in general has a connotation, especially in African, well, any minority community here in the United States where you're supposed to be, if you go to therapy, you're crazy. Um, so a lot of times if you talk about therapy to like older generation, such as like my parents um, or their parents or anything like that, they don't view therapy as something that's necessary. Um, they almost is almost equivalent to going to a mental institution yeah. um, in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> the good thing is we could stop that stigma and just mm. know that it's okay with not being okay and it's okay to talk to someone. I just think that we have to really look at mental health the same way that we look at getting a regular physical. So how we go to get a physical, we could look at therapy the same way and it can really help you work out things that you may be afraid to ask or talk about to your friends or anything like that. Um, it's just somebody that you can talk to and they can help you work, work through things. Mm. Yeah. I, it's, it's about, it, it's not about needing to go to therapy. We can all understand our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it should just be a part of our daily routine, like going to lunch or going for a walk. Um, exactly. There's no in it no shame um but I get that whole older generation that they see it as a there's something wrong with you yes it's because <laughs> that generation they they didn't you know they had to survive a lot and mm-hmm. their trauma is you know they internalize their trauma yes uh, which is part of the problem um because they don't talk about it and then that's how we get the generational cursors mm. but talking about it um like I know when I told my family that I was going to therapy they was like oh my gosh like you're not crazy why are you going to therapy so it was a lot of (laughs) negative talk um about the idea of me going to therapy but I'm not ashamed of it um and nobody else should be ashamed about therapy I think it's a beautiful thing you should go regardless (laughs) if you don't have anything going on just go oh yeah yeah with you you know <laughs> talk about your day and what you got up to and you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah just go anyway um so do you feel that you know like with the fact that your father-in-law had died and um with everything that happened with his leukemia and his colon cancer um that you had the right grief therapy and you know you said she was great um do you feel that it helped you to carry on, it aided with where you are with your grief today? I'm going to say yes, Um, simply because the techniques that she taught me, 
um, I can apply it to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, with CBT, um, it's all about changing your thought process or how you may approach the situation and looking at the different possible outcomes and choosing the best outcome for the situation. Um, So I feel as though it has helped me with the grief process and I've even applied it to other scenarios. Um, So, yes, I definitely think that she was an awesome therapist. (laughs) It really did help. I'm I'm so happy that you had that and, you know, that you you had that support to talk through everything that happened because it's a lot what you had gone through. It's a, a lot of pressure and, um, you know, good for you, man. Honestly, I'm in awe of you for, oh, thank you. for how caring you are, um, which kind of brings us towards the end of the podcast now. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Um, would you like to share some favorite memories of your father-in-law? <laughs> sure. Definitely the Prince one that I told talked about earlier was definitely one of my memories. But one of the fondest memories, because um, a lot of times when you're a caretaker, you're not really sure how the other person feels. Um, and you don't want to be selfish in a moment to say, you know, do you think I'm doing a great job? Or is there anything I could do better? Um, but at the end... Like the last conversation I had with him where I felt like he was cognitively there. Um, he said, Carrie, I just want you to know that you are amazing daughter-in-law. Um, you did the best that you can do. And I don't think anybody could have did anything any better. Um, and don't think that because of what the doctor said, that there's nothing else left to do. That is a reflection on anything that you did, that I did a really good job. And at that moment, I cried (laughs) because I wasn't really sure whether or not he appreciated anything that I was doing. Um, I just didn't know how, what, what his thought process was as far as how I was doing as, as a caregiver. Mm -hmm. And that was just validation for me. And that was something that I needed to hear at that moment. And that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. Which kind of brings me to now your final sort of message to the communities across the world, uh, in the States, in the UK, about accessing mental health services. Do you have a message that you'd like to deliver about that? Yes. Um, My message would be, don't be ashamed or afraid to seek therapy. Therapy is a, a beautiful thing. Um, It doesn't have to necessarily be something that you're depressed or anything like that. It could be something as simple as you're noticing that, you know, every time you get a new job or something like that, you're noticing certain things um, or interactions that you're having with coworkers. It could be simple things like that. But I do think that, and I encourage everyone to pursue therapy. Um, For one, you could tell your deepest, darkest secrets (laughs) to this person, and it's a judgment-free zone. Um, It's a way for you to actually get truthful answers, because sometimes family and friends, they're not going to give you a truthful answer, or they give you a response based on their own fears and insecurities that they have with themselves or what they know about you. Um, So therapy is definitely something that I think everyone should pursue, 
um, when it comes to dealing with someone, well, when it comes to dealing with grief, um, it's a good way to talk to someone about your grief and to realize that maybe the, the where you are in your grief process, that it's okay. Like you don't have to, well, let me rephrase this. With grief, it could take forever. <laughs> like you can yeah. always grieve possibly, but um, talking to a therapist, you can find ways and strategies to help you cope with those times that you may feel down due to the loss or a situation that you're in. So I definitely encourage everyone to actually pursue therapy. Um, it's very helpful. And if you had a bad experience, please try again and just find someone that you like. There's <laughs> definitely resources out there to help you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my big push. Thank you so much. And that kind of now brings us to how people can reach you. Do you have social handles that you'd like to share? Oh, sure. Um, I have Facebook, which I know a lot of people aren't doing Facebook now, but um, Facebook, it's Carrie Pugh. Um, on social, I mean, sorry, on Instagram, it's Carrie Inspires. Um, on LinkedIn, it's Carrie Pugh. And then you can also reach me on my website, which is www lifeinaclutch.com which is l-i-f-e-i-n-a-c-l-u-t-c-h beautiful and now we're going to close with the gratefulness challenge do you know what that is yes but if you want to explain it's fine <laughs> yeah so for those of you that you know everyone that's listening to the podcast the gratefulness challenge is a moment for us to reflect and talk about what we're grateful for in the here and now it can be more than one thing mm -hmm. and I know a lot of my guests they like to mention me in the gratefulness challenge but it's not about me I get mm -hmm. that we're all happy to be here and all of that um, I know how you feel about that but mm -hmm. <laughs> make it about you and in the here and now uh, would you like to go first or shall I um, it doesn't matter if you want to go first, because I feel like I've been talking for a while. So okay. <laughs> maybe right. they want to hear from you. <laughs> All right. Um, I think it's so lovely that the, the podcast has expanded its list listeners, like it's listening all over the world. Uh, so I just want to shout out the fact that I'm grateful for our listeners overseas. So um, after the UK, that's the United States of America, Canada, India, Jamaica, Germany, Switzerland, I think Cape Verde is in there as well. Australia. I'm probably missing out a few countries. Um, I think Russia was the other big one. We've got a lot of listeners in Russia. I uh, just want to say if that's you, I'm really grateful for you taking the, the time to listen. I really, really appreciate it. This is a, a platform for us to share our stories. Uh, it's not that we don't have a voice, but it's empowering the voices of those that we never hear from. Mm -hmm. Uh, the diaspora is huge and I just want people to know it's okay to have that open dialogue and I hope all of you that are listening overseas that you're inspired by this and that you will continue to talk openly about these societal issues and about death and grief it's it's not a taboo it's okay it's okay to talk about this and yeah I'm I'm just grateful to all of the listeners thank you so much oh that was beautiful and congratulations. This is a big move for you to 
start moving into other countries to interview people. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Very excited. You should be really yeah. good. Um, but my gratefulness um, at this moment, um, as you know, there's the pandemic of COVID-19 that's happening right now. Um, I'm thankful for my health at the moment. Um, I'm thankful for my family. I'm also thankful for the opportunity, um, despite many businesses being closed and things of that nature, nature, to still be able to help people and work from home. Um, although it's a challenge, I'm not going to lie, um, but I, I am definitely grateful for the opportunity to still be helping others um, while home during this time. Um, what else? Um, I'm grateful for the experience that I had with my father-in-law because it, it actually it taught me a lot. Um, I didn't realize how strong I was and how much I could actually endure. Because um, going through that process, I didn't think I would ever finish and graduate from college. But I actually graduated from college last week. So I'm very thankful and appreciative um, for that situation. But those are the things that I'm grateful for. That was the amazing Kerry Pugh. She was talking to me about her father-in-law who died of leukemia and cancer. Let's wish Kerry love and continued success. I'm excited to find out more about Life in a Clutch and that's why we will be inviting Kerry back to the bereavement room in season two. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Kolsima Ali.